Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody, and thanks so much for listening in today. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about art in the Waldorf classroom and art in the Waldorf curriculum. I wanted to give you a little bit of a background for this episode before we get started. I wrote a blog post about what was called art and Waldorf education back in March. Um, and if you search that on waldorfy.com, you can go back and find that post. And I did a lot of research for that one, which is going to be, I guess, the backstory for today's episode of the podcast. In that blog post, I explore the why behind art and Waldorf education. I'm digging into what was Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Waldorf education, what was his intention in integrating art across all the subjects within the Waldorf curriculum. That's a pretty unique approach. Generally, Generally, not always, in a traditional approach to education, you see art as a class. There's an art class, and then there's the math class, and then there's the English class, and then the science class, and then the history class. But within the Waldorf curriculum, starting in kindergarten, maybe even earlier, up through first grade and all the way up through grade 12, art in different mediums is actually integrated across all subjects. There's really quite specific reasoning behind this. The why is that Steiner observed that human beings are threefold, thinking, feeling, and willing. And in his development of an approach to education, which became Waldorf education, he wanted to address these three capacities. This is discussed a little bit in episode one or 101 with my guest, Glenn Graham. That episode is called, What is Waldorf Education? Part one, if you want to listen to a little bit more of this aspect of it. So he wanted to address these three capacities. In a traditional approach to education, generally you're really focusing and developing the thinking part of us. And Rudolf Steiner wanted to approach all of who we are as human beings, as I mentioned, thinking, feeling, and willing, which is head, hearts, and hands, which you may have heard before connects to that. So in looking at why art is everywhere within the Waldorf curriculum, it's because he wanted to touch into the feeling side of us in his observation of humans and children and developing Waldorf education. He observed that in the youngest children, that's where they are developmentally. That's how you can reach a child. The youngest children is through this feeling part of them. And in art, what do you experience when you do anything in art, painting, drawing, uh, performing arts, handwork, knitting, woodwork, any of these mediums, you experience joy. And when you touch in joy, it makes you excited. It makes you want to learn. It makes you want to participate. And that is a huge component of why art is integrated across all the subjects. Coming to so we have thinking, which we obviously are addressing within Waldorf education. And my guest today is actually going to get a, give an example of how she uh, uses or has used art to approach a math block within the main lesson. But coming to this third aspect, the willing uh, or the hands within the head, hearts and hands, when you're doing an art project uh, as a child, you're having to develop your patience 
your persistence. And at the end of a project, you're getting that feeling of completing something. Ah, I did it. I worked, I worked, I persisted and I did this. And I certainly had this as, as a child. So not only is Steiner looking to in his development of Waldorf education, touch on this feeling side of us, but also the willing to, which helps us to develop the thinking side. So it all works together. Thinking, feeling, willing, head, hearts, and hands, and art, and education, it's all connected. So that's really the why. What we're going to talk about quite a bit today, we will talk about a little bit of the why with art and Waldorf education, but we're really going to speak quite a bit to the how, because my guest today, who's sitting here with me, is Darcy Drayton, who I know as Mrs. Drayton, because she was my sister's class teacher for eight years, and my sister had a wonderful experience in your class. And uh, so, hi, Darcy. Hi. Darcy is an artist herself. She works with oils and watercolor, and she has 23 years of experience teaching within a Waldorf classroom. And when I was checking around the community and asking about who should I talk to about art in the Waldorf classroom, there were many people that referred to you and said that I should speak to you about this topic. So let's dive right in. My first question for you is if you could a little bit get into the why. I did speak to that already a little bit. So if you could give me your why art is incorporated into the Waldorf curriculum and then get into the how. So how you as a teacher have incorporated art into your classroom and into the curriculum. And maybe you could start off with speaking about the earlier grades first, and then we can kind of work our way through the grades, how you incorporate art into all the subjects. Well, in the elementary school in particular, which is where I've been teaching the first grade through the eighth grade, it's um, you're really teaching out of what we call the feeling realm of a child's life. And I often ask parents to remember back to their elementary school experience and what exactly do they remember. And they remember things most of the time that aroused their feeling life, their their emotions. And so art fits in with that, of the visual arts I'm going to talk about specifically. It's a way to work with material that they've been listening to. So say in first grade, you have a fairy tale and the children love to make pictures about that. Now, the thing about art and the visual arts is the integration is crucial to everything because in first grade, the drawings that the children do are also the lead-in for writing. So when the children uh, have a fairy tale that includes water, say they're going to sail over the ocean, and the waves in the water, and they may draw with the teacher helping them a beautiful picture of, say, a boat and waves. And then they discover out of those waves a W and use that um, as the beginning of exploration for words that begin with W and so forth. Okay, so back to the art. In the early childhood program, they usually let the children just play with the colors 
the paint in particular wet on wet on a wet piece of paper and one color at a time. They generally let them draw um, whatever they want. And, and the drawings are very typical developmentally of children um, at that stage. And you can see a lot in the drawings about where they are developmentally. And that's really a lot of fun. That continues on into the early grades. So when I had first grades, what I would do is make kind of a reverent ritual out of getting prepared. The paper is soaked. It's put on boards. Uh, the water is, the excess water is wiped off. And usually the children uh, sit in quiet. I try and have it as quiet as I can so they can really have their whole experience be about a specific color or a group of colors. So at the very beginning, we would, I would maybe have yellow and tell them a story about yellow that I've just made up that feels like yellow to me. Like yellow is um, so happy to wake up in the morning. Yellow loves to rush out into the brilliant sunshine, which yellow is a part of. And yellow dances around. And as I'm telling the story, I have my own piece of paper up on the blackboard that's wet. And I'm brushing the yellow onto the paper and the children follow. And they love to follow at this age. It's really, um, really enjoyable for them to, to do that. And when they look down on their paper, because the pigment is suspended in water, it has um, a transparent, translucent quality to it. So it's very shining. And the whole point of the painting is actually that experience. It's not the product after it's all finished. It's really the chance just to play with color and to have an experience to drink it in, you could say. I just want to clarify for those listening what we're meaning when we're talking about wet on wet as a medium. So that is in reference to watercolor painting, which is uh, it's the way you're approaching painting in the early grades. Uh, the As you mentioned, the paper is wet, and then you have the water, and then you have the paint, and then you're you know, utilizing the paint and the water on the wet paper to really explore the color, as you were mentioning. And I have very fond memories of this as a small child. And I love how you're speaking to how this is creating a reverence for the work at hand. And the children are learning um, how to care for their brushes, how to rinse. I always have two containers of water, and I say one is the dirty water and one is the clean water, and they do two rinses. And they're really very slowly and leisurely learning how to work with that medium. Um, a lot of adults that I've taught really have a kind of a fear about doing watercolor that because it seems like it's not going to be able to be controlled. And it is a little tricky. Uh, but as with any art, or really anything in life, uh, it's you have the art and then you have the craft of the art.
So we've talked about painting now. Let's talk about another medium that you use in the lower grades. Uh, How about beeswax crayons? You're approaching drawing with beeswax. And why beeswax? Why beeswax crayons? And how do you approach this in your classroom? Yes, it's a natural material. It smells really nice. That's always good rather than kind of petroleum-ish. it uh, the pigments in the beeswax crayons that we use. Um, it's super saturated, so um, the color is um, can be quite intense, which is also really lovely. If you have little Red Riding Hood and you want to do her cape, you want it to be red. Yeah. I mean, really red, rich red. And um, we use the beeswax crayons that are most of the time in first grade that are little blocks. And I tell the children, I say, you know what? You are actually painting with the crayons. And so you're, and I show them how to do a gesture of color down um, that's shaping the, um, the gesture of the, of say Little Red Riding Hood's uh, cloak. And the point of, using those block crayons is we're trying not to um, define the drawing in terms of line, but in terms of color. And not that line is a bad thing. And when they do their what we call free drawing, they're, um, they're certainly welcome to do whatever comes to mind or to hand. But in the class, when we're drawing in our main lesson book, we're all drawing together, and it's a group experience. So generally, I lead the the drawing. And again, I have a piece of paper. For me, this is how I do it. I, I have a piece of paper, big piece, taped up on the board. And I very slowly go through the drawing um, bit by bit. And at the end, the kids will say, well, can she have brown shoes? Sure, she can have green shoes or brown shoes. So I give them choices. But once we've mapped the the drawing in and of itself. How about modeling? I remember modeling with beeswax in the early grades, especially first grade, actually. And then later on, I remember modeling with clay. Do you utilize clay as early as first grade? Some people do. I've used a kind of um, clay that's beeswax and your regular clay, except it's not um, the regular earthen clay, but makes it plastic, um, not plastic as in petroleum, but plastic as in modelable, is really uh, a little bit of oil and a little bit of beeswax in it. It's mixed together. And so... I would use that. Some some teachers have used regular clay, and it sort of depends on your own inclination as a teacher and where you feel the class should go and what they should do. Any kind of modeling. I mean, you could model really with sand in a tray. Some teachers do that to form letters and so forth, either to do a depression in the sand that's wet say, a wet sand to model the letters. And I remember using beeswax to model with in first grade uh, to make letters of the alphabet. Very often, you're making things that arise again out of the stories that you've been telling. 
I just have some wonderful memories of the early grades, maybe first, second, third grade, and using these different mediums to be able to understand the topics that the teacher was trying to teach us. So modeling, for instance, I have a memory of learning about the four math processes and utilizing the beeswax. We We had the beeswax and we made it made the beeswax into small little stones. Maybe they were jewels. I'm forgetting the small details, but we had them maybe five or six on our desks and we made them into these little balls that were the stones or the jewels. And then we would kind of divide them into, you know, two little piles. Oh, we're dividing now. And then bringing them back together. Oh, we're adding them together now. And it really gave me using my hands and making something. It really gave me such a context to be able to understand what we were learning. And it really, I have such a distinct memory of it. And there are so many other examples of that for me within my Waldorf experience of really having and using art as a tool to be able to really thoroughly absorb the information that was coming at me. That's right. You take it in more fully. Yeah. And and the more senses that are involved in your learning, the richer and the deeper the learning is, the more it has um, the possibility of wider context, not only at that point in their life, but later in life. So how does the use of these three mediums evolve over the early grades? We have painting, we've introduced modeling uh, and drawing, and there are others too, but how do they evolve over grades, let's say one through four or five? And we've been discussing modeling a little bit specifically, so maybe you can use that as an example. So with modeling in the first grade and even into the second, you're um, often taking... um, whatever you're modeling with, say it's clay or beeswax, and you're starting often with a ball that they make, a round ball, and then out of that one um, piece, you're pulling out various forms. It could be a flower, could be a fox, could be a chicken, could even be a person. And generally, you don't add things onto it. You want it to kind of just arise out of that one piece. And um, usually I go around and help them if they're frustrated because they're, the neck of the fox got really skinny and it's about to fall off. You know, those kinds of things. I'll go and help them out. So as they go up in the grades, um, you do tend to add more clay in. I know I um, use that um, beeswax uh, clay uh, plasticine type material. And, you know, every morning we would, in the fourth and fifth grades, we would model just one thing, really, just quickly. And also, you know, frankly, it's very good exercise for your fingers, good for small motor development, if you really want to put it on that developmental plane. Uh, and also uh, giving the child a chance to really relate very experientially, very much in their fingertips, the three-dimensional world. And that's something that um, you can't you can't get that by just looking at something. You have to actually work with the material. That's why in kindergarten and so forth, we often say, 
it's really important for the children to just be playing. Let them outside. Let them play with mud and sand and things like that. It's really that tactile experience of the world and being able to move it around is um, really important for their ability to understand how things work spatially. And that will help them in later grades when they go to do geometry in three dimensions. I love that we've been talking so much about modeling. I especially we're talking about how these different mediums evolve over the course of your experience um, in Waldorf education across the grades. I have really great memories of the feeling of completion of a project, which really for me specifically came with the three-dimensional stuff, modeling, uh, knitting, you know, woodwork too, as that comes in around grade four or five, how that the feeling was just so thrilling when you get to finish something like you've worked so hard on it. You had to learn patience, persistence, uh, to really work on completing these, uh, pieces and learning the tools to be able to complete these pieces. So I love that we've been talking about that. So let's talk about how then these mediums, how art evolves over, uh, the later grades. So four or five, all the way up through grade eight. That's that's a good question, especially the patience and the persistence. That's both those things are so important. With the with the drawing, as the children go up in the grades, you can begin to introduce different techniques so that they have different experiences. There are different things that you can do with different materials. So at some point, usually around fourth grade, fifth grade teachers often introduce um, for drawing uh, pencils, and often it, in the beginning a thicker lead-colored pencil, and then finer as you go up in the grades. And they're learning how to shade, learning how to uh, be able to do details, when to use line, when to use a broad brush of color. And as the children go up, you begin to teach them Um, more technique. So in fifth grade, we have a botany block, and I always love to take the children outside to, in the fall, if you pray for a wet end of the summer, and so the mushrooms are popping up everywhere, and to have the children sit down and actually look at what they're studying and just draw it in nature just as it is there is a wonderful thing. And the other thing for botany is um, modeling with beeswax. I'll bring the beeswax back in and modeling flowers. Um, The beeswax, because it's um, translucent, you can um, make beautiful, beautiful flowers. Uh, I can remember the buttercups that some of the children modeled, uh, rhododendron flowers, all kinds of flowers that uh, really help them live into what the plant looked like, including the pistils and stamens in in the plant itself and the sepals down at the base of the flower. All those things uh, are really important. Uh, Drawing ferns. So I had, we went out and collected ferns and I had them um, pick a fern that they were going to copy, brought it back into the classroom and, and then used 
that um, to also identify which fern was it exactly and write that down and then write about where did they where did they collect that fern from and what was the environment it was growing in so it um, that kind of bota- botanical drawing also really recapitulates how science was done from the early early days when naturalists would go out and collect and draw. I love how you're using botany as an example of art in the classroom here. I think there are parents who think that you just pick up a pencil and draw or just pick up a paintbrush and paint and that's all there is. But actually what's really happening, especially in this instance, you're giving the example of with botany, is that you're actually using the artistic medium as a learning tool where here where you're speaking about botany, drawing is a method to observe the natural world. And specifically you're talking about the ferns, right? You're using this medium to first observe and then the child is putting it onto paper and in a way articulating through the drawing their observations. So again, it's using the artistic medium to teach the students to become keen observers, which I have to imagine is going to, you know, cross over in to other subjects. Yeah. Let me go back um, to example in first grade. So I liked to give the kids uh, blackboards on their desks. And um, we would say, animate, especially the math concepts. And I can remember for one math story, I had uh, chipmunks um, gathering nuts and storing them down in various storerooms underground. And each of the children were drawing their own chipmunk and their own uh, storerooms and drawing in the nuts or the seeds or whatever it was. And it was a um, a very wonderful way for them to uh, actually work with the imagination, work with the art, with um, an intellectual concept, but not through an intellectual approach, but through an artistic approach. And this leads me to something else that I think that people are sometimes confused about when talking about art and Waldorf education and the relationship between the two. I think once people begin to understand that art is integrated across all the subjects in the Waldorf curriculum, they ask, oh, or they think uh, Waldorf school is an art school. But if you really dig in here, I, I personally, I would not call Waldorf school an art school. How I would describe the relationship between art and the Waldorf curriculum is the curriculum is the focus and then the use of these artistic mediums enhances the curriculum. I know that's that's really the case with my own personal experience going to a Waldorf school. I mean, you really live into what you're learning through the art. It wasn't like art as in like, this is the art class. It was more like you take a history class, or I should say it would be a history block within a main lesson in a Waldorf curriculum. But instead of using, say, a textbook as the tool to move through that content in the block, you're using art and artistic mediums to move through that content. So drawing, painting, uh, sometimes using other mediums. And the use of these tools is what's unique about art and Waldorf education and the way that you're approaching learning. So anyways, uh, let's move along here. I have another question. I know we had discussed this a little bit before uh, this interview started. 
this afternoon. And that is what parents ask you, uh, questions that parents ask you about art in the classroom. Could you give an example of a question or something that's come up with parents surrounding art in your classroom? So when we do a painting, say I'm doing a painting in, um, we're doing, we've been studying Egypt in fifth grade, and I'm doing a painting of the Blue Nile and the bright gold sands with the pyramids rising up and the blazing sun in the blue, blue sky. And we're all doing that together. And the parents say, why don't you just let them do whatever they want to do? And my answer to that is, of course, there is a time when they should be able to do whatever they want to do. But this... The experience that we have here when we're doing it together, it's a little bit like all playing an instrument together, a musical instrument. If you gave a violin to a child, you wouldn't say to them, well, sweetie, do whatever you want, um, because it would be cacophony. And you want, so what you're doing is you're teaching them technique and you're teaching them how certain colors and shapes go together, how to blend edges sometimes, all those kinds of things. So you're giving them a toolkit with, and they can use that toolkit to do their own um, work on their own. And I will often say to the children, whether it's a writing assignment or a painting or whatever, I would say, you know what? I would love to see your own piece. Do that at home and bring it in and we'll put it up on the bulletin board. And some kids actually take me up on that and it's really delightful. So speaking to parent questions... I think that there's a big question for parents in talking about art in Waldorf education that is, you know, when there's this focus on having art integrated everywhere, how does that carry over to subjects like math? I know we already gave an example of how art may be used in science when we gave that example of botany in grade five, but could you give an example of art being used in a math block? So this past year, we had a business math block and Often we have created checkbooks and all kinds of, um, usually um, we, you know, we, I say to the children, you know, have, uh, pick a business that you would like to have and people go around shopping in the classroom for different businesses. But this year I, I really felt like we needed something a little deeper, something more, um, in tune with life as it is now. I was thinking about the world that these children and their children are are going to be going into, and I felt a moral imperative to really bring something, how shall I say, as a template for a different way of looking at the world. So what I decided was um, that I was going to give them a town in New Hampshire. And I said, you have, I think I said 300 acres. And I said, so we work together. What are the resources that this town would have if you lived in New Hampshire? Well, you know, we have gravel, we have sand, we have agriculture, we have wind. Because I said, oh, and this is one thing. I said, the caveat here is that um, you don't have any fossil fuels at all. You don't have coal, you don't have petroleum. So 
Um, but would we like machines? Would we like technology and electricity and things like that? And yes, they agreed they would really like that. I said, so how are we going to get that? Well, they came up with solar power, wind power, water mills, um, because our, our land um, was hilly, as it is now. And um, they said the other resources we have are rocks. Um, I said, okay, so what were the businesses that were around here before? And they came up with, um, well, there's dairy and some growing of crops. I said, yeah, it's a little hard here. I did give them in their town a little river bottom land so that it wouldn't all be hills and rocks. Um, and then, uh, they said, I said, well, in the town that I live in, we have a street called Glass Factory Road. How did, what is that about? And so then we got to how we have all this, um, sand around here left over from the glaciers. And there used to be over in a town next door, a potato starch mill. Um, we had sheep farming. Uh, and wool and wool manufacturing and mills with uh, uh, water-powered mills. And the students really, I said, so you've got to form this town together. And I gave them, we have two at the front of the room, two huge blackboards. And I gave one whole blackboard for them to draw their town together. And so because they had all this experience with drawing, they could draw together and individually, um, where their businesses would be, where their fields would be, where their houses would be. Um, and then I also gave them math. I said, you know, the town is going to subsidize, um, 25% of this particular business venture. Um, how do you do the math for that? I gave one child, um, the, uh, um, the job of being the banker and helping to figure out the loans. I had town councilors who were deciding um, about um, subsidies for various business ventures. And, you know, what could the town together produce that they could use to trade for um, material or um, things that they didn't have. So one girl wanted to do a bakery. And I said, that's really great. You're going to um, have to use probably rye and barley because they don't grow, wheat doesn't grow well around here. And so you'll have to trade for that. And what materials can you trade for? So we soon had um, furniture making and um house building and we had conservation land so that the trees that we farmed were farmed in a in an ecologically healthy way for the wildlife it was really exciting i could have done that block all year frankly right and the and the real beauty of it is is that i had the freedom to be able to create that block um, steiner talked about how teaching is an art so when we're talking about art, it's really, we're talking um, about it down to the, every aspect. It's not just visual arts. It's not just music. It's not just math. It's the whole thing is an art, especially the teaching. If you're not teaching as an artist, then you're not really serving the children the way they need to be served. 
So we've talked a lot now about the visual arts. I know that another specialty of yours, or passion, I should say, or both, you're really great with the dramatic arts, with the plays, uh, the play blocks within the Waldorf curriculum. Could you speak to that a little bit? Okay, so usually um, play is out of the curriculum at hand. So um, again, because I have creative freedom, I can write the plays for the kids that's specifically for the children. So I remember my first class that your sister was in, the first grade play was Iron Hans. And um, the idea is that every child in the class is in the play. And the whole point of the play is to really work with the story really deeply, to work on their speech and to have help them um, be able to speak clearly and strongly. In the first grade, a huge amount of it is done chorally. That is, they're all speaking together. Even if you have one person who's, say, Iron Hans or the princess or the prince, they come out and everybody may be speaking, but they're acting it out with great fervor. And it's a whole, um, a whole class experience. The play, more than almost anything I can think of, the play has the capacity to socially transform a class as well as transform an individual's social relationship within the class. So the point of the play isn't the performance, it's all the practices. Because what you want is you want every child to have a chance to play every part that they would like to play. And so you spend many weeks um, in the first grade, it's often in the circle time at the beginning, and they do it over and over and over again. And they memorize that play. And even after the play is done, even up into the middle school, they will just spontaneously dart um, declaiming often together parts of the play like they would a song. It's really, it's really quite wonderful. Um, very humbling when you think you're going to write the play for them. You want to make sure that the um, lines they're speaking are worthy of that repetition. As they get up in the grades, um, well, even in the younger grades, I often would ask them, what parts do you think you would like to play? And I said, I'm going to decide who plays what part, but I want to hear what parts you think you want. And I say also to the class, remember, as you go up in the grades, some years you're going to have what you think are lead parts, and sometimes you're going to be supporting a classmate in a lead part. And you want to remember that the smallest part in the play is as important as the biggest part, because the play only is only as good as everybody is doing their very best. It's amazing that over all the years that I've been teaching, generally speaking, students pick parts that I would have picked for them. Sometimes even in the middle school, you can have the rest of the class say, um, you can ask them, who would you have do these various parts? And that's another interesting way to get them involved in it. As they get older, we work individually with parts, with expression, with their capacity to move. I tell them, if you're 
trying to memorize lines, if you move with the lines and use the gesture that your characters will use, you'll be able to remember your lines better. Movement helps. So each year uh, you're picking um, a play that really speaks to the curriculum at hand. And you incorporate movement, you incorporate music. Um, It's Probably when a play is well done, it's the most gratifying experience for the class that they can have. It often is a hallmark for their year. And and the kids remember those plays because it involves their feeling life, their emotions. I generally, even with the shy children, you know, ultimately, I didn't have a huge amount of problem with that. And I, I think it's because we just played around in the practice. Everybody got to be every part. And, and I think those that were shy felt really supported by their classmates and by the story itself. You know, in the middle school, I'd have uh, the classmates go and way in the back of the auditorium or way up on the balcony, I say, and I would say, okay, raise your hand when you can hear your classmate. And then when they got it right, everybody would cheer and clap, and we'd be so excited. And the other thing is, is that very often, um, kids will, a shy person will actually ask ultimately for a role that maybe is a very, a personality that's very different from their own and give them a chance to play into that personality. So off, not always, but a play, uh, a theme for a play in fourth grade around the Norse myth is the gods and particularly Loki, the trickster. Well, sometimes it's really great to have a child who's full of mischief and and that way of looking at the world to play that um, kind of uh, trickster character to really live into it fully. But sometimes you have, uh, say, a girl who is maybe reticent and a little shy and maybe good most of the time, play that wicked, wicked uh, person and really live into uh, a shadow side of that um, quiet, quiet, demure uh, stance that they normally would have. I just love talking about the plays. I had so much fun in the plays when I was in school. So I have just one more question that I want to wrap up our conversation with for you. There are parents and caregivers who are listening to this that don't have access to a Waldorf school. Some don't have one in their area. Some may, some may not be able to access Waldorf education from a financial perspective. Some may not even have a Waldorf homeschool approach as an option either. So is there anything that you would suggest from a Waldorf artistic perspective that a parent could bring into their home and their child's life? Really important. I would say turn off the television, the video, the phone, um, because they're giving you images that are hard for the children to digest. And they're going to um, imitate those things over and over and over again. And it's not, it's not, um, by and large, it's not uh, coming from their own creativity. Uh, the only, except for Mr. Rogers, I really bow down to him. Uh, but Fred isn't online anymore. Um, anyway, uh, I would just, um, by not having media in their life, then you create the time and the space for artistic expression. 
um, have the materials to hand, do it with your children, you know, experiment, go make, um, get some watercolors and just play around with the color, get some modeling material and play around with it. Um, if you do it with your children, they'll enjoy it a lot more because then it becomes also a social time with the parents and children remember those things more than anything else. And read to them. And when a teacher tells a story, rather than reads a story, but just tells a story to a class or to a child, something happens that's very different. And there's, um, by telling the story, the teacher is having to work with the images that come up out of the story that they're telling. That work that the teacher is doing actually really makes a difference in terms of how the children are receiving that story. Another way of looking at it, too, is as you're telling the story, you're exercising those children's capacity to visualize the story. That capacity to visualize helps them then to put... um, a story into a sequence of images. And that capacity carries on into later life. Um, If you're going to produce, say, a podcast, you have to visualize all the materials. You have to visualize where you're going to be. You're going to have to visualize the sequence. And it's not just words that that you're using to create how you're going to get from A to Z. It's really um, a set of particular circumstances that you're creating an imagination that you're then going to bring in to make it an actual creation. One thing I say to parents is that anything you do to make a difference in yourself, it has a profound effect on your children. And you are never too old to try something new, to, to work on yourself, to um, even grown-up children really connect when a parent is doing something new and different and working on themselves. So it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, the, uh, I have a lot of aphorisms that I say to my students, and it's kind of a joke, you know, mistakes are opportunities. If it doesn't succeed, try, try again. And one of them is, um, the best is the enemy of the good. Don't go for perfection. Go for trying. You know, go for, you know, seeing what happens. The experiment of life. And as a parent, if you you know, you're trying to create um, a relationship with your child, with the world. And whatever you can do that's creative and dynamic and, uh, you know, not out of a recipe all the time is a wonderful thing to do. Telling your kids stories is wonderful. And they will love the stories you tell, even if you think in retrospect, gosh, That was kind of a doofus story to tell. They will love it because you are telling it to them and they love you. Wow. I love that little parenting tidbit at the end there. 
I cannot thank you enough for speaking with me today, Darcy. I hope the Waldorfy audience enjoys listening to this conversation as much as I have enjoyed having it with you. It's been such a pleasure. So thank you again. And thanks so much to all of you for listening in. I have been having a total blast creating this content for you all about Waldorf education. I would love to hear your feedback on this episode or on any of my content. You can always send me a message at info.waldorfy, that's W-A-L-D-O-R-F-Y, at gmail.com, or leave a comment on the show notes page for this episode. I would so appreciate it if you would rate and review Waldorfy on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It would be wonderful if you could share Waldorfy with your colleagues, friends, and family too. Sharing on any social media platform is a great way to do this and spread the word about Waldorfy. You can find lots more information at waldorfee.com, including the show notes page for this episode. I hope you'll connect with me on social media. I'm at bwaldorfee. I'm active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Be well.